in chapter 20, and reading again from verse 6, And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the fist cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. He saw and believed. The Christian church stands or falls by the resurrection, and Christ's enemies fully understand that, and so they will make every effort to undermine uh, the belief that we have in the validity of the resurrection, just as described in the four Gospels. Islam, which is very influential in the West uh, today, uh, denies that Jesus was even crucified in the first place, let alone rose from the dead. Many popular authors over the years have done very well financially with so-called bestsellers that repudiate the resurrection, showing that it could never possibly have happened. They pandered to a large and gullible audience of people who would rather believe what some well-known author has to say rather than going back into the scriptures and examining the facts for themselves. Such people rarely read books by genuine scholars, genuine scholars who defend the resurrection by assessing all of the data. I remember reading a book many years ago, I cannot now remember the author, uh, but he set out to prove that the resurrection could not have happened. He was an agnostic, I don't think he was a Christian, but during his, uh, during his search, uh, trying to prove that Jesus could not have risen from the dead, he came to believe the scriptures and he came to write a book not repudiating uh, the resurrection, but, but, but believing in the, the resurrection and showing that it happened just as we read it in Scripture. And the crucifixion itself was the central point in human history, world history, whereby the sinless Son of God left the glory of heaven, came into this world, and uh, he came into this world with one ultimate objective. Yes, there were so many other things that he did and said, but he came with the ultimate objective of going to the cross and there dying in our place and paying the penalty for our sins. And such a death would have served no purpose whatsoever if there had not been a subsequent resurrection to demonstrate that his death had indeed served the purpose intended, which was to save sinners from an eternity in hell. And Christ's death occurred just as God planned it before the earth was made. It was at the cross that Jesus brought about reconciliation between a holy God on the one hand and sinful humanity on the other. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And it is there at the cross that we find forgiveness for our sins. And it is there at the cross that we can enter into a new life and a living, trusting relationship with God. Because that's what true religion is all about. It's about a relationship with God. It's not, as I said in my prayer, it's not about engaging in ritual and, and doing the same thing over and over again or going on some arduous pilgrimage to some uh, distant mountaintop shrine, even going up uh, on our uh, knees. 
not uh, a couple of weeks ago when it was the Easter week, we saw in different parts of the world people who uh, were going through the streets of, of their communities carrying heavy crosses and some of them even being scourged, some of them even being nailed to those crosses in, in certain countries of the world as if somehow doing this could get them right with God. But none of that will get us right with God. We trust in God. We exercise the gift of faith. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians that even the faith we exercise is a gift from God so that no one can uh, boast. And we must ask ourselves here as we sit in church week after week and as we come under the faithful preaching of the world, have we yet come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord? Have we yet entered into that loving, trusting relationship with God, which we can only do through trusting in his Son? And if we will not bend the knee to his Son here in this life, then we will certainly do so in the life to come, where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. We know that Christ died for sinners. His own words explain to us the meaning of his death. The Son of Man, he says, came to give his life as a ransom for many. I am the good shepherd, he says. In another place, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Noble statements, but they were noble statements spoken by a man who had not yet tasted the bitterness of death. And if Jesus had died even the death on a cross and had been placed in a grave from which he never rose, then we would not be meeting here today because there would be no church, no assurance that our sins were forgiven and no hope whatsoever of life after death. The Old Testament promises of a savior would still await fulfillment. The first evangelical promise in Genesis chapter three, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel, would be meaningless today if Jesus had not risen from the grave. Death would still reign as the last enemy, an enemy that would forever be triumphant. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, and here he was addressing uh, Greeks. Greeks were well known for the application of logic. They would, they would take a subject and they would apply logic to it. And Paul meets them at, at their, that point. If there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of the Greeks were saying, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Are we in fact to be pitied more than all men when we gather here week after week? Are we uh, indeed uh, uh, are we the products of the greatest con of all time? Are we living a lie, the victims of a great con? But the, tra the fact is that we have more cause to rejoice in any uh, other uh, people because we have a living savior. We have one who stands in the breach between a holy God and ourselves. Statements such as I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me would be meaningless if they were simply the recorded words of a long dead prophet who remained in the grave. But they are in fact the living words of the 
living God, words to give us hope, words that have power because the speaker is very much alive, having conquered death. Resurrection is the key to the cross. The New Testament letters explain Calvary. We have the New Testament letters because there is a church, and we have a church because there is a resurrection. So I want us to get back to the uh, account of that John records uh, for us here. We read that Joseph of Arimathea, accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who formerly came to Jesus by night because of fear of the Jews, a man who was a secret follower of Jesus, who had not yet come out into the open. They came and they sought the permission of Pontius Pilate to take down the body of Jesus and to give it a dignified burial. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that they wrapped the cloth in linen. They wrapped the body, sorry, in linen cloth. But it's only John who gives us this more detailed account of what happened because we believe that he witnessed it. He elaborates here the the burial procedure. It was done in accordance with Jewish burial customs. The body was anointed with a mixture of myrrh and aloes, not just sprinkled with a very small amount, but we're told here that Nicodemus brought 30 kilograms or 75 pounds of this uh, fragrant uh, mixture with which to anoint the body. And then as they wrapped the body in linen cloths, linen strips, so they were sprinkling the... uh, Um, this mixture underneath the linen cloth to anoint the body. The body was not just left on a stone niche with a a sheet placed over it, such as the Turin uh, shroud. It was wrapped in many yards of cloth. It would have been time-consuming to do that. And as the bandages were wound on, as I said, the perfume mixture was sprinkled underneath. And we're told here that... Joseph, well, we're not told, but we know that Joseph was a a wealthy man. Matthew tells us that this was his tomb cut out of the rock and obviously prepared for himself. And we read uh, Jesus' body was placed inside and a heavy stone was rolled over the entrance. In Isaiah 53, uh, the NIV, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. But Joseph of Arimathea was not a wicked man. He was a righteous man. He was a follower of Jesus. He was a man who stood up in order to be counted as a follower of Jesus. He was a righteous man, not righteous because of his own actions, but made righteous through trusting in Jesus. J.C. Ryle believes that the verse is wrongly translated. It should have read that his grave was appointed with the wicked, but with the rich was his tomb. Jesus was crucified as a common criminal, and it would have been expected that when his dead body was taken down from the cross, it would have been thrown into a common grave alongside the two men who were crucified on either side of him. But that was not the case. It was placed, as Isaiah prophesied, in the tomb of a rich man, a rich man who was a secret follower no longer a secret follower, but a follower of Jesus, who now risked his reputation in order to give Jesus a dignified burial. He could say with Paul, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose, whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I wonder to what extent we would jeopardize our own reputations within the communities in which we live, within our workplace, in order to stand up and be counted for Jesus. I was very encouraged uh, recently during the uh, hustings that were taking place, looking for a new leader of the SNP and thus a new uh, First Minister, that not once did Katie Forbes ever compromise the faith. She was honest, she was candid, and uh, yet people attacked her, not because of what she uh, wanted to do re regarding the country from a financial point of view, but they kept on trying to undermine her because of her biblical beliefs. She stood up for righteousness. And so we find here that Mary went to the tomb. She saw the stone rolled back. It wasn't rolled back in order to let Jesus out of the tomb. It was rolled back so that they could see into the tomb and to see that it was empty. And so she ran to tell Peter and John, and they, one man older than the other, they ran to the tomb, the younger man passing the older. He looked in, but he did not enter. And then Peter arrived, and he stooped, and he went straight in, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, and the cloth folded up that had been over the head and face of Jesus. But I'll come back to that in a little while. There are many theories that have been put forward to explain the resurrection, and most of them are uh, very foolish, but all of them have been uh, repudiated by the fact that the linen cloths were lying there. The first, and it's, I'm only going to give three simple uh, theories here. The first is that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, is that likely? If they went to the wrong tomb, it would have been very easy to go to the house of Joseph and, and to tell him to come and, and show us the right tomb. I'm sure if somebody wanted to go and see the grave of one of your loved ones and you took them to the cemetery, you wouldn't make a mistake. You would be able to point them to the very spot. Mark tells us the women saw where Jesus was laid. The Pharisees could have gone to the correct tomb, they could have opened it, and they could have shown the body to the world. And then another totally absurd uh, explanation is that Jesus was not really dead. Uh, having hung there for over six hours, having had a spear thrust into his side, having had a centurion, a battle-hardened soldier, uh, testify that he was dead to the surprise of Pontius Pilate, uh, to imagine that he was not really dead. He recovered in the tomb, some people say, and made his way out. You know what it's like when you've done a bit of jogging or a bit of weightlifting or you've been in the garden and you're, and, uh, you're feeling tired, your limbs are aching. Uh, can we truly imagine that Jesus, having hung by iron nails for six hours, was then able to get up off that stone niche in the grave, put his shoulder to that great stone, and roll it away. No, totally absurd. One writer comments, it's impossible to believe that a man who had crept half dead from the grave, weak, ill, and in need of urgent medical attention, and who must surely have eventually succumbed to his wounds, could have produced the impression 
in the minds of his disciples that he had triumphed over death and the grave and whom they would call the Prince of Life and whose resurrection formed the basis of all their future preaching. And then again, the disciples stole uh, the body. But these and all the other theories are disproved by one thing, the linen strips. If anyone had stolen the body, if anyone had removed the body, they, would have, uh, they wouldn't have hung about in order to unwind the linen strips. And remember that the value of the spices that was underneath those linen strips was of considerable value. You remember the, the jar of uh, ointment that uh, Mary broke over the head of Jesus, and on another occasion, the other Mary broke it over his feet. It was an expensive perfume. And this also uh, was very expensive. Uh, if they were stealing the body, and if that's what they wanted, they would have taken the body and unwrapped the linen strips and stripped away the spices uh, where they could not be uh, discovered. And so we've come back to the linen strips. We're told here that they looked into the tomb and they saw the linen strips. And they were convinced by the linen strips that Jesus had risen from the dead. So what exactly was it they saw? When Jesus uh, came to in the tomb, did he suddenly break the linen strips? If that was the case, then there would have been bits of linen and bits of of the, the, the spices scattered all over the tomb. No, that was not the case. Did Jesus somehow manage to uncoil the linen strips that were around him? And if that was the case, then they would have probably fallen on a heap. Uh, but John saw something that was quite extraordinary. And we're told here he saw and he believed. He believed because of what he saw. And we're told here, then the disciples went back to their homes. John went back to his home because that's where Mary, the mother of Jesus, was. On the cross, Jesus said, Mother, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. And from that day, John took her into his home. John had not yet met the risen Jesus, and yet he went back home to tell the mother of Jesus that she need more no longer. Her son was alive, and all because of the linen strips. So what was it he saw? Now you might accuse me of speculation here, but remember that the disciples were in the upper room. They were gathered there for fear of the Jews behind a locked door, and Jesus appeared in their midst. The locked door and the walls of the room did not prevent Jesus from entering in. And the same thing happened in the tomb. The coils of linen that were wrapped around the body did not prevent Jesus from coming out from those coils. And so what I believe that John saw and that made him believe was that the linen strips were still coiled up, just as they had been coiled around the body of Jesus, but the body was no longer there in the midst. As if you were going to the British Museum and there was a mummy there, an Egyptian mummy, and yet there was no body within. That's, that's what they saw. That's what they saw. Had anything else, they would not have believed. But that enabled them to believe to such an extent that John went and told the mother of Jesus, mourn no longer. And what about us? Well, we've not seen the empty tomb. We've not seen the strips of linen. But have we come to believe 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words of Thomas, and we, which one of us would not have said the same thing if we had not been present? Uh, would we not have said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Which one of us would have said uh, otherwise? Because the dead no more rose to life 2,000 years ago than they do today. But Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's us. We've not seen, and yet we've been enabled by God's grace to believe. And because of that, we are blessed. To be blessed by God is the most wonderful thing that could happen to any man, woman, or child. The New Testament writers want us to believe that Jesus suffered and died for our sins. But how do we know that God accepted the sacrifice of his son? How do we know that God was pleased with the sacrifice of his son? It's because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the proof that God accepted that Jesus has indeed paid the penalty for your sins and mine. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was speaking to the, uh, to the philosophers gathered in Athens, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. And remember, there's some mocked, but there were others who wanted to hear more uh, about this. I want us to finish uh, with a hymn. I don't know who wrote it. It's from the 12th century. The powers of death have done their worst, but Christ their legions hath dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. The three sad days are quickly sped. He rises glorious from the dead. O oh, glory to our risen head. He broke the bonds of death and hell. The bars from heaven's high portals fell. Let hymns of praise his triumphs tell. Lord, by the stripes which wounded thee, from death's dread sting thy servants free, that we may live and sing to thee. Isaiah wrote, after the suffering of his soul, or after the travail of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Isaiah 53 describes a man who is put to death, but then he rises again and he looks at the travail of his soul and he is satisfied. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless these thoughts and meditations on his word. Eternal and ever-blessed God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the descriptions we have in scripture. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts if they have not yet been opened, and that you would take away our doubts and our skepticisms, and that uh, we would be able to glory in the fact that in Jesus we have a risen Savior, that the head of our church is not moldering in a grave like the heads of the religions of so many other peoples. So, Lord, take away anything said that's not in accordance with your word. May the glory be yours and the blessings ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We conclude by singing in Psalm 16. For